0: Welcome to episode seven of Between Two Docs, straight talks from two docs, no politics, no hysteria. We're taking on COVID in real life and in your questions. Last week's episode had over 11,000 views. So thank you so much for those of you tuning in each week. We enjoy sharing our ideas with you and we hope this has been something educational and a little bit entertaining through the pandemic. So thank you for watching. All of your questions and feedback are appreciated, and please keep them coming. Three segments today, like usual. We're going to start with news topics from the week that struck Dr. Valentino and my fancy. Then we have our special guest, Diana Barrent, the founder of Survivor Corps. And then we hit on a few of your questions. So let's jump right into the news, and we're going to start with Dr. Valentino this week.
1: Yeah. So some of you may have heard about a medication called tocilizumab. I'm going to call it tosi for short because it's much easier to say. Um, I've, I've written about this before and we've touched on it in the past, but it's an anti-interleukin-6 um, uh, medication. It's actually an antibody that, that plugs up the receptors to interleukin-6. Interleukin-6 is one of the signals the body's immune system uses to kind of ramp up. And so this blocks that. It was originally used in um, other conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, a condition called giant cell arteritis, and other forms of the cytokine release syndrome, which we've referred to in COVID as uh, cytokine storm. Uh, they're one and the same. Um, so there's some early data now coming out of, of use and it's been used in different ways. So I'll first mention briefly, uh, there is an Italian study that was released um, earlier this month that showed perhaps no overall benefit, but perhaps in a subset of patients, it may have had benefit. I think the issue there with that study is how and when the drug was being employed. And uh, as we've, you'll see as a recurring theme, if you use medications too late in severe disease like COVID, uh, the outcomes are usually not improved. Um, so there's a better uh, pilot study, an observational study that came out of Yale, 239 patients um, in which they uh, looked at tocilizumab or TOSI um, to target the cytokine release syndrome. Uh, it's in one center, so it's just at the, their one uh, institution. And it was done for uh, a period in March of uh, 2020. So again, time frame March early into the kind of where we were with this, even though it's only three months ago, it's relatively long time ago into how much we knew. Um, And they followed patients for a 14-day period after they had been um, given the medication. And what they were looking at was mortality and uh, ventilator, um, uh, need for mechanical ventilation, ventilators in an ICU. Um, About 90% of the people treated with tocilizumab qualified as severe covid Uh, based on their oxygen requirements. Um, These patients, again, had high inflammatory markers, things like CRP, D-dimer, et cetera. Um, And what they did show was that, um, and this is the most important takeaway point from this that that goes into why more studies required, is that the survivor uh, total in patients who needed mechanical ventilation who got this drug was 75% survivor. The other way of saying that is the mortality was 25%. So up until now, we've seen mortalities on mechanically ventilated patients with severe COVID to be reported as 40 to 90%, depending on the center and the country that's releasing the data. So this is something that bears a lot more investigation. And so the authors of this um, rightly conclude that this does need to be looked at in a randomized controlled uh, fashion in a much more controlled you know, study, but there are a number of studies enrolling um, tocilizumab and drugs just like it currently in process. So we're going to see a lot more about this. I think the drug is very promising um, from having used it personally and also from uh, experience from other colleagues. And again, the issue here is using it earlier in severe disease. Not a medication to call Dr. Cohen and say, can I get this? I'm sick at home. It's not for mild or even really moderate. It's really for the more severe people progressing. Um, so stay tuned to that, but that's uh, that's important information joining us in the community these days.
0: Yeah, it's always exciting to get news on promising treatments and please don't call me, I cannot get this for you. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my story this week, uh, there's a little bit of overlap in states in our country Starting to quarantine, uh, for forced quarantine on other other travelers to their states as well as the European Union. So news this week out of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, they said, look, if you're coming to us from a high risk state, and they gave a list, you know, Arizona, Florida, Texas, California, you have to quarantine before you come into our state, or uh, once you come into our state for 14 days, uh, the European Union. A little bit before that said, hey, we're going to make a list of foreign countries where if you want to come into the European Union, which covers most of Europe, you you can't come. We we don't want you here. So not only can't you just quarantine for 14 days, but they don't want you coming into their country at all. So we're starting to see a little bit of the haves and the have nots here. You know, Florida months ago, or maybe it was even less, it seems like months ago, said we don't want New Yorkers coming down here because that's where the epicenter of this virus was. So now in a little jab to the other states, these uh, three northeastern states are saying, look, if you want to come here, you have to quarantine. So the difficulty with all of this is it's not super enforceable. There's no one set up at the borders of these states. There isn't a quarantine police. Uh, The expectation is that if you're coming from a high risk or a, a higher infected state to a lower infected or lower risk state, you might not want to do that. I don't think it's going to stop droves of people wanting to go to New York, New Jersey, Connecticut this summer, but it does put a little bit of pause into your summer plans. Europe, however, a little bit easier to enforce as most people are flying there to get through airports. might be complicated if you have an American passport. Europe eventually is going to have to balance their need for tourism dollars with the scientific evidence that's out there. And some of the countries like Greece uh, in Portugal right now are saying, you know what, I don't want to sign on to this. We really need these tourism dollars. Uh, Nine million Americans traveled to Europe last summer, and that leads to billions of dollars in tourism. So basically what we're seeing is little ideas being thrown out to seed in people's minds saying, look, if you're coming from high risk to low risk, we don't want you. The reality and the enforcement and the prosecutorial piece of this is very low, but it's showing sort of divisiveness from state to state and country to country. So more to come on that, but that definitely struck me as being interesting little headlines this week. We're now gonna enter our second segment. We are very pleased to have a special guest today. We have Diana Barrett. She's the founder of Survivor Corps, which is the largest COVID related grassroots movement in America. And uh, we are extremely pleased to have her today to educate us and inform us on what looks to be and has been a very promising uh, treatment for people who are suffering from COVID-19. So the first question I have for, for Diana is, you know, how did you learn about convalescent plasma and what made you create this organization to handle its distribution?
2: So, I had COVID early on. Um, I live on Long Island right outside of Manhattan in a commuting town, a suburb, and I was exposed to the virus on March 9th and came down with symptoms on March 13th. So, keep in mind, this was before everything was shut down. Uh, March 12th was the last day of schools up here. Um, Schools were still open, everything, it it was brand new. I was one of the first people in my area to really fight like hell to get a test finally got tested and realized um, I went very public with my story and so I was really one of the first people in my area in Nassau County which is a very congested um, suburb of, of Manhattan of New York City. Um, I was the first to have a positive diagnosis and go forward with my story and I realized that. Um, If I was going to be one of the first people diagnosed, in all likelihood, if all went well, I would be one of the first survivors, and with that came both a responsibility and an opportunity, because there would be thousands and thousands and thousands to follow. I could not have imagined at the time how many thousands to follow. Um, At the same time, I started getting email from Mount Sinai, which had the first convalescent plasma program up and running in the country. Um, but specifically in New York. And because I was the only person anybody knew who had come forward and said that they had COVID and they were looking for convalescent plasma donors. Um, I am not a scientist. Um, I took the last science class I took was the uh, easiest one that they offered my freshman year of college at Kenyon. um, Baby psych Uh, did not prepare me for this, Um, but I did remember just enough from 10th grade biology to remember how antibodies are created, um, I did a little bit of research and sort of looked back on the history of convalescent plasma, going back to you know the Victorian times. Um, you know, starting off in 1896, I believe, um, in the use against diphtheria. The, the Nobel Prize was won for it in 1901. It was later used for the measles, for polio. Um, it dropped off uh, with antivirals, and then uh, came back on the scenes with uh, MERS and SARS, Ebola. Um, So it had a long honored tradition, but what I saw what was going to happen when I started getting like 30 of these emails that was being sent around like spam from Mount Sinai, looking for donors who are 14 days symptom free, because at that point, there just weren't very many of them to be found, that um, I saw sort of the landscape unfold, and I saw that survivors were going to become a commodity, and that... Free markets work in most situations. Um, I am a big believer in free markets, but not in every situation. In a global pandemic during a moment of collective crisis, you need collaboration and efficiency. And I was right. Uh, Mount Sinai was not the only one to, you know, uh, in town for very long. Within weeks, we had, you know, the Rockefeller Institute in Columbia and Montefiore and, you know, then later Northwell and Stony Brook and, you know, I could go on and on. But what we did by coming in right at the very beginning, I created Survivor Corps September, uh, uh, sorry, uh, March 24th as a way of mobilizing an army of volunteers to support every academic and scientific effort to combat this virus. Um, was that we were able to level that playing field. So there ended up never being an element of competition between those research universities in terms of their recruitment efforts. We came in and did it for them. So, I, you know, I, I can't do your jobs for you. Um, you know, my, my baby psych uh, class freshman year of college isn't going to allow for that. Um, and I can't do the scientists work for them, but I can do their recruitment for them. Um, so I ended up being the very first uh, participant at Columbia University's Convalescent Plasma Program. Um, so my plasma actually went, my, I donated my full eight donations through the New York Blood Center. I just finished up this week. Um, and my first donation went back to research at Columbia. Um, in their study to figure out the effectiveness of convalescent plasma because up until that point, it was only being used on a compassionate care basis. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my subsequent seven units were all distributed on an as-needed basis to patients um, because I I decided to go that way because I have, um, I'm an AB, I have AB positive blood, which um, as you guys know, but I I certainly did not know this, um, but plasma matches and blood matches are not the same. So AB positive is a universal donor for plasma and is in great demand. So um, that is, so that's a little bit of of my story. Um, I started the Survivor Corps group, a Facebook group, which now has over 61,000 members. Um, It's open to everybody and has really become a tremendous resource for uh, medical professionals as well, because we are seeing, uh, we've basically amassed the greatest data set on survivors that exists. Mm -hmm. And in that, we are seeing symptoms weeks ahead of the medical community, um, weeks ahead of it hitting the presses, we saw COVID toes weeks in advance. Um, we are seeing ocular issues now that I have not heard another, a doctor confirm or have not seen a paper done on. We are seeing, um, you know, real live data, the long tail effects of the long haulers, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, so many aspects. Um, so that is one element is our community. And our ele- other element is we have a website, survivorcore.com, which is basically a one-stop shop of how to get involved. If you have the antibodies, you can save lives. Um, So whether that's through a plasma donation or through participating in a study, I was just mentioning one of my favorite ones is one through Stanford. Um, I'm a big Fitbit wearer and it tracks your, whatever uh, uh, a wearable fitness device is and what they are hoping to do is they think that they can actually track by by looking at that data they can predict they can tell you that you have COVID before you are symptomatic um so there are so many ways that you can participate um as a survivor you have superpowers uh you know in as i like say inside the arm of every COVID-19 survivor are the antibodies that will lead us to a cure but we also have the answers um, that will lead us to a cure in terms of our long-term symptoms in terms of sure so much, much that we can offer.
1: So I, I think that that leads us to a nice segue into the question I have for you, which is, and, yeah. and I'm someone who's been using convalescent plasma in the hospitalized patients, both in the ICU and in some of the medical wards. Um, so I've seen it firsthand and I'm curious on um, your take on some of the more recent literature on convalescent plasmas' uh, efficacy in COVID nineteen,
2: I mean, I'd be interested to hear what your experience has been. I think that the um, you know the most obviously frustrating element of knowing where we are with it is that it has, up until this point, outside of I believe Johns Hopkins, Columbia, and Mayo um been used um almost exclusively as a you know last ditch effort um in under situations of compassionate care so to give this you know last ditch of antibodies to somebody who's already in full organ failure you know i'm just i'm no doctor but that doesn't seem to be like you know the greatest the greatest measure Um, The most recent data that we are seeing come out is saying that not only is it um, not harmful, which is extremely important to keep in mind, um, that it does seem to have a positive effect, um, although they're still trying to figure out the exact timing and the potential also of turning this direct transfusion into a treatment yeah. through a hyperimmune globulin product, um, yeah. which would really change the landscape of plasma-derived therapies.
1: I, I think um, I, I would echo that. I, early on, it was being employed later. And and this is as we were fumbling through our way of how to approach patients. Yeah, we're talking back in like March and early April. As we move forward, we started getting it into patients earlier as they present it with more severe signs of uh, either symptoms or they had the cytokine release syndrome, also known as cytokine storm, um, right. that would theoretically benefit from this. And uh, I, I personally, again, this is my anecdotal experience from having used it. I think you're going to see the data moving. If you employ it earlier in the course, you're going to yes. see better outcomes as it is with many therapies in in right. and other infectious disease. I, I, think,
2: I think that every, every doctor I have spoken with is in agreement. Yeah. Um, that it was just a matter of having to get the trials done um, to get the plasma first deriving the plasma sure. Sure. and sure. and getting it through and getting those studies done but yes absolutely I think that there's no question that giving it at you know along with last rites is probably not optimal Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there are really incredible potentials, even the possibility of it to potentially be used prophylactically.
1: Yes.
2: Um, I mean, and that, that's, that is really extraordinary. Um, and so as, you know, as we heard Dr. Fauci say the other day and the New York Times report this morning, um, there is this increased interest in convalescent plasma in its potential as a therapeutic, um, not just as a patient infusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we have fractionators, you know, like Griffles and Takeda and CSL-Bearing and the other ones who are mentioned in the Times this morning, who are all working to create, um, you know, first of all, collect enough plasma to do this, which is why I tell you all, if you have the antibodies, please go donate. Go today, go to survivorcore.com, click on the fight is in us, put in your zip code, it will tell you the closest place that you can go donate. Um, You can sign up, it will send you an Uber voucher to take you there and home. Um, do it not once, do it every, as many times as you are able. I capped out it eight times because those were the rules according to the New York Blood Center. Um, if you go to one of these fractionators, you can go every other day. Um, you can even get paid for your efforts—you um, know, a, a modicum of compensation. But nonetheless, you know, the more important compensation is the fact that you are truly helping to save lives. Because if they can gather enough plasma to create these concentrated forms, yeah, that could be that could be really a game changer in terms of being able to be used prophylactically with. Um, frontline workers, with people yeah. who work in um, elderly, you know, care facilities.
1: I think an important um, correlate to that 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 the viewers and listeners should know is that by donating multiple times, you're not depleting yourself of yes. antibodies. Um, your your body's immune system has these memory cells that will continue to produce them for a a time. We don't know how long that time is yet. That's still being studied. But um, you're not depriving yourself of the antibodies by donating. So,
2: I cannot thank you enough for pointing that out. That's a question I get asked all the time, and I'm sorry that I did not mention that. It is not a zero-sum game. You are not giving away your hard-earned antibodies. You are sharing them. Um, your body will keep on producing them.
0: You can just go through the process of what plasma donation entails, because obviously there's That's always a fear right. of the
2: I want to tell you just how incredibly not only is it easy it is one of the most rewarding experiences of my entire life um and you know i i think i can count on the fact that my husband and kids are not watching this right now i will put it up there with being as rewarding as getting married and having children um i i i mean that's that's pretty serious um you know look They say, you know, they say in the tradition that to save one life is to save the world, and you have the opportunity in 28 minutes to save three to four lives. Um, And all that entails is it's actually easier than giving blood. So I'm going to actually show you my arm because I just did my eighth donation in 10 weeks, and you can see there's no mark, not a bruise, nothing, nothing, nothing. Um, It's easier than giving blood. You go in. Um, you do need to meet the same criteria um, as it is to give blood. So your iron count has to be high enough. And one of the things that we are seeing is a lot of post-COVID anemia. Um, so that's just something to be aware of. Um, you have to weigh a certain amount, you know, all this sort of standard things, your blood pressure, you have to be symptom-free. Interestingly, um, when that, the uh, question that comes up is, I still can't taste or, smell fully. Does that count as symptom sub- free? Um, that is officially not a symptom when it comes to plasma donation. Um, that is the official line on that. Um, so I can tell you that one. And you go in, they slip a needle into your arm. Um, these are prophlebotomists, phlebotomists These guys, they know what they are doing. They are so good. You don't feel a thing. Twenty minutes later, you're finished. Um, What it does is actually takes your whole blood out, and there's a um, centrifuge that sits next to you, and it separates out the plasma from the red and white blood cells, and you, as they call the plasma, the liquid gold, so that sits up there at the top, and um, they return the red and white blood cells right back into your arms, so if you had experience with being dizzy or fainting last time you gave blood, that will probably not be the case this time. It's actually easier than giving blood. Um, I did not. I drove myself um, for all of my donations there and back, and did not even stop for the cookies and juice on the way out. On Survivor Corps, people post their donation selfies every day, and um, they are heralded as superheroes with hundreds of likes and accolades, and it is, it is the, um, look, it's the badge of honor of the COVID era. Yeah.
0: Well, for, for Dr. Valentino and myself, I want to thank you for this tremendous amount of information. I want to thank you, A, for turning a very scary negative in the early part of this disease into a very solid positive. Your website's outstanding. It's www.survivorcorp.s C-O-R-P-S, for those of you who have problems spelling, uh, yes, dot com. It's
2: named after the Peace Corps, by the way, not by accident. <laughs>
0: Don't go to survivorcore.org. They sell generators. Exactly. You don't want to go there. Exactly. So go to .com. Be fried, yeah. This is a way you can give back very easily. We're all struggling in this time. And what better way to give back and make yourself feel good in a natural way than to donate plasma for research, for health, for saving lives. So thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to going through your website a little bit later this afternoon. Everybody, please explore it. If you're checking antibodies and you're IgG positive, please consider Plasma Donation, it can save a life. Thank you so much. And for our next segment, we're going to address the questions that have come in in the past week or so from our Gmail account. Thank you for all of your questions. Uh, The first question that came to me, and it's been a common theme, is thoughts on school reopening. The question was specific to a county, but I think it applies to to all counties. Uh, We are now end of June, schools in most of the country aren't gonna open for two more months. There's three possibilities here, and I don't don't have a crystal ball, I wish I did. You're gonna have either kids coming back to school with tons of guidelines. You're gonna have a hybrid program where there's gonna be some kids in school and some kids at home doing virtual learning, or you're gonna have a complete pivot to virtual learning where all these kids are gonna be at home for a little while. We're still two months away from decision-making, and I think this decision is gonna be very geographically based and also based on the means of the communities that this affects anything they're saying now and they can issue 17, 20, 35 pages of guidelines to address these are really not applicable until we know what the framework is going to be. School is going to be different, that much we know. School is going to come back, that much we know. In what form, we don't know. My guess right now would be a hybrid form with half the school being there some days so they could be socially distanced. Half the school at home learning virtually, if that's doable with Wi Fi connections and computers, which is a challenge in many parts of the country, until we get closer to treatment or vaccine. I don't see a full return in most areas. That's not saying that your area won't have that, nor am I seeing full virtual learning. Uh, I think the complexity of that, that we've seen in the past three months, was really tough and really inefficient although they have a couple more months under their belt. So definitely a state tooth item from my standpoint. It's going to be very geographically driven. I think kids in Montana are going back to school. I think kids in these rising areas of infection are going to have a very different program coming up in the next couple months.
1: Yeah and, and a topic you'll hear more from us I'm sure as this evolves. And um, my, my uh, question is one about you know the uh, some data coming out of China, about the waning antibodies after having uh, COVID infection. So we've talked and written about this that we don't know how long if you've survived COVID and your body's made antibodies. We don't know how long they last for. Um, we can extrapolate from from SARS, uh, another coronavirus, and, and those uh, may be somewhat over a year to two years, um, but we really don't know. COVID hasn't been around long enough for us to know. So there's some data trickling out of Um, China which said that uh, after even a few weeks to months there were waning levels of antibody there are a number of questions to be raised about this and obviously this is an area where we need more study from other countries and lots of um, uh, genotypically different individuals um, because everyone's immune system functions differently and there's genetics are inherent to that Um, I think you know, the, the questions I had when I looked at this was, you know, what assays were they using to measure these antibodies? Um, we, we all know there's problems early on with some of the antibody assays and if they were using them early and maybe picking up the wrong antibody, maybe we're not seeing a true tighter um, change. Maybe it's a little bit off because of that. So I really am at pause to say, oh, a couple of weeks you're gonna lose immunity and then you're gonna get COVID again. It's just not an experience we're seeing. Again, um, hard-pressed to find true cases of actual COVID reinfection in somebody who survived it. Yes, I'm getting anecdotal reports emailed to me or messaged to me. Um, Somebody was negative, then they were positive, then they were negative and positive. We've talked about how the uh, nasal RNA can be a little bit unreliable and you can have persistent RNA present even after you've recovered and you're not clinically ill. So there's a lot of variables to throw into it. I think this is an, an area where we want to continue to watch, but we won't probably have the true answer to this for you know at, at least another six months to twelve months, just seeing how this this unfolds. Um, but a good question nonetheless. The
0: uh, next question on our list for this week and uh, summer is here. Um, you know what? What can I do for vacation? Can I go to the beach? Can I go to restaurants? And I'm going to answer these together. The answer is yes. Um, outside is our friend. Outdoors is our friend we've seen very little spread of virus in outdoor situations. Beaches, while crowded at times, you can still socially distance. And uh, I've been to the beach, I was there several weeks ago. What is usually a crowded beach was about three quarters full and everybody was socially distanced. Families were sitting together. They were sitting at least six feet apart and the breeze was excellent and beaches typically have a little bit of wind. So very tough to get this on a socially distant beach. Restaurants, same thing eating outside is wonderful. Even when there's not a pandemic, eat outside now when you can. Would I wanna be inside in a restaurant right now? Not necessarily. Uh, A lot of restaurants are getting very creative. Those that are lucky enough to have outdoor seating are utilizing that. Those who aren't lucky enough are utilizing their parking lots and setting up tents and tables to get people outside to prevent spread of infection. We uh, were fortunate enough to have dinner outside last night for the first time since early March. I forgot what it was like to actually order food from someone else who wasn't a family member. Tables were spaced out beautifully. The menu was on our phone. They gave you a QR code to go on to. All the servers were mask. The tables were socially distanced. We had a great time. It was really a welcome change in the routine. So beaches and restaurants are absolutely available. Support your local restaurants. Get to the beach, socially distance, wear a mask, and wash your hands, and go and have a great summer in a responsible manner.
1: Phenomenal. Uh, I need to partake in some of that too. Um, So uh, the the question uh, raised this week is uh, to me a couple times was um, the COVID smartphone apps, are you using them? And interestingly enough, you know, I am an early adopter of technology and I'm I'm certainly not a technophobe, but I think um, this is one area where I, I dove in a little bit, checked it out and then pulled my feet back out of the water. And I'll tell you why. So these apps, you have to install them. They're not automatically just in your operating system. Um, And they're available for both um, Android and and, um, uh, iOS-based smartphones. I haven't checked other ones. Um, Basically, what they do is they um, allow you to enter data about yourself, about where you may have um, uh, been traveling, uh, about some uh, symptoms you may be having. And this is the key issue. You self-report symptoms in there, and it's got a whole list of common COVID related symptoms, which again are not COVID specific. You can get a lot of these things from any other type of viral upper respiratory infection or bacterial in some cases. Um, And so uh, you put all this information in and then it it shares where you are by GPS. And then it also, you give it permission to communicate with other um, similar devices near you. So if you're reporting that you have perhaps a fever, or a cough, and some COVID symptoms, um, the app might flag you as COVID possible, and then it might share information with people you've been closely around. Maybe it's in a grocery store, uh, maybe it's in church or some other type of location, um, and it might alert them that they have might have come in contact with somebody who has COVID. Um, the problem here is it's akin to having you know, there's an old joke out there about the uh, having the public have access to the emergency brake on a, on a high-speed train, um, which they don't technically have. You can ding the thing, but it's not gonna stop the train necessarily itself. However, this is the same idea. So you could have anybody putting in any information they want. They could be messing around with it. We know how people do things on social media, just uh, you know, sometimes out of spite to be funny. Um, these things wouldn't be that funny because they'd be alerting people and making them nervous or concerned that they've got something that is maybe totally baseless. And there's already enough anxiety out there about COVID symptoms. I know uh, Dr. Cohen and myself get calls and messages all the time from patients. You know, I've got this or I got that. I think I got COVID. And most times they don't have COVID. But still, there's a lot of anxiety and, and, and concern. So for right now, my own opinion, I'm backing away from them. I'm sure some people will adopt and want to use them. But I'm just gonna sit on the sidelines for this one and you can do as you wish.
0: Dr. Valentino, stick to Candy Crush, probably more entertainment value at this point. So thank you all uh, for tuning in. We're gonna continue to introduce special guests each week. For episode eight, we plan to have a local dentist talk about their return to practice. And of course we are open to your ideas as well for folks that you'd like to see us interview in our middle segment each week. Please continue to send questions to Between Two Docs, TWODocs at gmail.com. We read each and every one, and we hope to continue to respond to a handful each week. And we plan to introduce a new episode weekly as long as this pandemic allows. For Dr. Valentino and myself, thanks for tuning in.
1: Please stay well, please be good to each other, and we will see you next week.